What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly. And today we are going to be celebrating the master of menace, the horror icon, big fan. Uh, we are going to be talking about Vincent Price. This is the first of a two-parter. And today we're going to go into the biography. I'm not going to mess around. I'm not going to bury the lead. Uh, this is going to be handing over to me. I'm going to be talking about Vincent Price's life. So sit back, strap in, and enjoy this episode. I'll see you on the other side. If there was a Mount Rushmore of horror icons that I could populate, there would be a place reserved for the Renaissance man of horror, Vincent Price. A cult horror actor that doesn't really get the attention I think he deserves today. There are still groups that appreciate and celebrate his work. And many of his films have been given the special edition, edition treatment by companies like Arrow Video and Shout Factory. But outside of this small, very appreciative group, Vincent Price isn't as well known as he should be. So over the next two episodes, in the month of his 110th birthday, I want to give you some info, an introduction to the man, his filmography and his personal passions. In this first episode, I'll be exploring his history as a Broadway star, film actor, art lover and family man, as well as how my appreciation for the man and his work have grown over the years. The second episode will be a more detailed look at my personal top five favourite films and a couple of others that are worthy of note. While I have said he is relatively unknown these days, I can guarantee that a large portion of this listening audience has heard his wonderful voice at least once, more likely numerous times. Every Halloween, his distinctive voice opens one of Michael Jackson's most successful songs, Thriller. Hi, this is Michael Jackson. And this is Vincent Price inviting you to The, the Thriller. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. Creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize your neighborhood. And whosoever shall be found without the soul for getting down must stand and face the hounds of hell and rot inside a corpse's shell. The demons squeal in sheer delight. It's you they spy, so plump, so right. For though the groove is hard to beat, yet still you stand with frozen feet. You try to run, you try to scream, but no more sun you'll ever see. For evil reaches from the crypt to crush you in its icy grip. The foulest stench is in the air, the funk of 40,000 years, and grisly ghouls from every tomb are closing in to seal your doom. And though you fight 
to stay alive, your body starts to shiver, for no mere mortal can resist the evil of the thriller. Can you dig it? <laughs> Although I didn't know this was Price's voice, I heard this song hundreds of times and loved the opening rap. My second encounter was once again brief, when he cameoed at the beginning of Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands as Edward's creator. It would be years before I would be re-encounter him and really start to get, take an interest, but more on that later. Before we get there, let's go back to Price's early days. Born in Missouri in May 1911 to a wealthy family, Price was the youngest of four children. The Price family were comfortable and travelled often, both within the United States and beyond. This included a number of travels to the countries of Europe, and these travels were used for leisure, but also to introduce the four children to different experiences and cultures. It had an impact on all four, but let's focus on Vincent. The young Vincent was taken with the art he was introduced to, and it would start a lifelong passion that he would share with as many people as possible. More on the sharing later, but a young Vincent wanted to know more, and so pursued an education in art history. At first, this was part of his Yale education, but went further and wider when he earned a spot on a course at the University of London. At this point, it is worth mentioning that during the family travels, Vincent grew an affinity for his ancestral country of England and spent a lot of time there. So moving there for a university course was a double boon. The chance to work with some highly respected art scholars and some of the world-renowned art pieces in one of his most favourite countries. So in 1934, he moved to London and started his studies. He was dedicated to his studies and became great friends with people at the university and art museums. He enjoyed a bountiful social and academic life in London, moving in intellectual and societal circles. However, it was soon to expand even further. Vincent had dabbled with acting for several years, but while in London, it would become a more serious possibility. In 1935, he was dared to audition for a play, Chicago. He did, and he was cast in a minor role. There were concerns from his parents, though, that this may be a distraction from his education. But he assured them that this was not a distraction, more an expansion on the art he loved, and he would still be committed to his studies. The experience was a revelation. He adored the theatre life, the people, the work, and the audience. He had caught the bug and started to pursue more auditions for plays, as well as radio work. Quickly, he gets a much more important role that will elevate him. He is cast as Prince Albert, husband to Queen Victoria, in the play Victoria Regina. He was completely dedicated to this role, wanting to prove to himself and show that he could be a serious career option as acting. The dedication paid off. The play makes a critical splash, if not a commercial one, and after a month run, Vincent has been noticed and has fully entered the world of theatre acting. But there's an issue. 
He had gone to England on a student visa, not a work visa. When it was found that he had been cast and worked on the play, it created a visa issue and the government refused to issue a working visa. And so Vincent was unable to pursue any of the offers he was receiving in other British theatres. He was gutted and felt lost. Luckily, the rights to the play Victoria Regina was sold to an American producer and the condition of the sale was that Vincent was cast once again as Albert. He was back on track and heading back to America. The play opened, was a success and he gained more attention. One of the most interesting reviews Vincent received, not only was he giving a great performance, he understood that the star was Victoria and he worked in the role as Prince to elevate her. In a nutshell, Vincent always knew the role. During this time, he was being mentored by Victoria co-star Helen Hayes to improve not just his performance, but the way he worked with the performing social circles. In addition to this, Vincent hadn't forgotten art. While performing on Broadway, he spent time in the art museums and grew his passion. He continued for several seasons. He would work in Broadway, and in off-season, he would work in stock productions, constantly working to improve and gain more experience. This all started to work, and in 1938, Prince signed a contract with Universal Studios to become a contract player. Basically, he was a universal talent, and they could put him in any of the films that they saw fit. This led to his first screen role in Service Deluxe, a stock studio romantic comedy. A good starting point for a young actor. It set the world on fire, but it displayed a talent and presence that would be recognised. Over the next few years, he would bounce between stage and screen, his star slowly climbing. It was in 1940, with his performance in The House of the Seven Gables, that he would make a real mark on the silver screen. A gothic romance that would stretch his acting chops, as his character would lament a family curse, an age over 20 years during the film. This success allowed him to negotiate a really good contract with 20th Century Fox for seven years that would give him time to act on stage as well as on screen. This would be a successful contract and he would make a number of films becoming more and more of a star. After the release of Dragonwick in 1946, critics were talking about him as one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. This star would hold him strong during the films of varying quality. Shock came out the same year, and while it was seen as a B picture, Price was praised for his performance and making the film a fun, sinister romp. This climb to stardom and critical response was mainly due to his ability as a performer. But he was also savvy, on knowing how to court the press and gossip columns. He was cordial, convivial and welcoming to them. He knew not to make an enemy of them, but he also saw it as a chance to make contact with his audience in a different way. Again, this paid off, as the papers were often complimentary, but more than that, it made people aware of his love for art as well as acting, and led to his first fan club being set up in 1947. In addition to his movie roles and fan club, in 1947, Price took on the role of Simon Templar in the radio version of The Saint, and this would also last for several seasons, up to 1951. It was both a success and a lot of fun for radio drama fan Vincent Price. Come in. 
Hi, Mr. Templeton. Oh, hello, Louie. Where are you? I'm in my room. I'll be ready oh. in a minute. Hey, wait till you see my cat. I gave it a bath for Christmas. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Look, I don't want to rush you, but if you don't hurry, Christmas Eve is going to be already Christmas morning. And what will all them tots think? Oh, them tots will be singularly fortunate. However, all I have to do now is get my whiskers on. There. How do I look? Mr. Templer, if I didn't know you was Mr. Templer, yes. I wouldn't know who you were. Hmm. Louie, don't I look like Santa Claus? This may come as a surprise to you, Mr. Templer. Santa Claus is fat. Oh. You're not fat. Oh. Well, hand me that cushion from the couch, huh? Okay. Here. Ah, thank you. Now then. How's that? Now say ho, ho, ho. What for? Santa Claus is always say ho, ho, ho. Oh, I see. Uh, uh, ho, ho, ho. Well, anyway, you look like Santa Claus. Hey, Mr. Templer, whose idea was this? Uh, Mrs. Winterbottom's. Oh, the dame who annoys tots on Christmas Eve. Mrs. Winterbottom. The end of the 40s also brought the end of his first marriage. Vincent had met his first wife, Edith Barrett, in 1937 when they worked on the play The Shoemaker's Holiday. It was a whirlwind romance and fiery and passionate Edith inspired and seduced young Vincent. They were married in 1938 and lived together in California, where Price started his movie career. An actor herself, Edith also attempted to make a name for herself in Hollywood, but was never able to translate her stage fame to that of the silver screen. The two often bickered, and Edith harboured a jealousy of Price's success. Eventually the differences became too much, and in 1948, they divorced. Vincent would tell friends it was a relief, but knew that he had played his part in the squabbles. He didn't remain single for long. In that same year, he met costume designer Mary Grant on the set of Up in Central Park. They would meet socially several times before starting a relationship, and would soon marry in August 1949. This partnership would come to be known as one of the most productive in Hollywood, in a number of ways. While Price's success to this point was great, he was usually still the third or fourth billed actor. He maintained a solid level of success, but was infrequently the title star. He had also acquired a reputation for enjoying playing the villain, and he was doing it well. This would start to really pay off in the late 50s, but there would be only be flashes of it for most of the decade. The 50s started with some hits and misses, but in 1953, Price would be set on his way to becoming the horror icon with House of Wax. House of Wax was a remake of the 1933 movie, The Mystery of the Wax Museum. The film follows Professor Gerard Price as a talented wax sculptor whose work is destroyed by a fire set by his business partner for the insurance money. Gerard is trapped in the fire and horrendously disfigured. He returns years later to start again, but now physically and mentally scarred, he begins killing people to embalm them in wax for his new displays. House of Wax was filmed in colour and 3D, which put the pressure on this production to look as good as possible for when it was on the big screen. This included Price's burn makeup, which took three hours to apply and remove. It became such an issue that he would be forced to wear it for long stretches, with it being topped up during the day. Adding to the frustration was the fact that the makeup was considered so hideous by some that Price was actually barred from the lunch area for fear 
he would cut people off their food. A quick side note, House of Wax was also the first screen appearance of Charles Deathwish Bronson as Gerard's mute sidekick. Anyway, the film went on to be a success and really enjoyed by audiences. This felt like it should be the tipping point of Price's career. This wasn't to be the case. This may have been down to the changing face of cinema in the 50s, as well as the fact that Vincent's name appeared on a list of suspects for the House Committee of Un-American Activities, the government group appointed by McCarthy to weed out communists in America. This was a bad place to be, especially in Hollywood, as the studios were determined to stay on the right side of the government. This included stopping working with actors and crew members that were suspected of being communist. It took almost a year, but eventually Price was cleared and given a letter by the FBI that stated he was not a communist. Well, this cleared the way for him to start working with the studios again. It left a bad taste in his mouth, and he resented having to be investigated in the first place. Following this were several film roles, but nothing really worthy of note. However, he would soon get another crack at the horror wing. It started with a secondary role in The Fly in 1958, the story of a scientist that would morph his body with that of a common housefly. Price would also appear in the sequel, Return of the Fly, the following year. This was topped off by his first work with shock showman director William Castle in The House on Haunted Hill, 1959, as the host of a party at an alleged haunted house who challenges the party guests to stay the night for $10,000. This partnership lasted to a second film, The Tingler, also in 59, about a parasite that takes hold of people and feeds on their fear. Both leaned into the shock and show principle of cinema, with buzzing seats and skeletons flying from the ceiling. It was an interactive thrill for audiences, bringing them back time and time again. This flourish of horror-related films in 58 and 59 became a turning point for Price. He had snarled billing on several of them, and the variety and quality of his performance put him on the map in a new way. A way that gained the attention of a younger audience and other creators. And one creator in particular was eager to work with him. During the 1950s, American Independent Pictures, AIP, was founded and formed a very successful partnership with director and producer Roger Corman, making low-budget black-and-white films. Corman was frugal with the budget and able to deliver well-made films on a 10-day schedule. This format had worked well and made everyone involved plenty of money. But by the end of the 50s, Corman wanted to aim higher and make something of a little of prestige. With his past success, he had gained enough goodwill to be given the opportunity by AIP, and he chose to bring an Edgar Allan Poe story to the screen, the gothic horror, The Fall of the House of Usher. It was given a 15-day schedule and filmed in colour. This was a big opportunity for the studio. Corman approached Price for the role of Roderick Usher, trapped in a house by the believed family curse. Corman would have us believe that Price was the only man on the list for the role. Others, however, have suggested that while he was near the top, there was actually a list. After accepting the role, Price threw himself into it, even bleaching his hair blonde to distinguish his look. 
the chance paid off. The film was a critical and commercial success, being one of the biggest money makers in 1960 and the first true mainstream success for AIP. In addition to this, Vincent received the Herald Tribune Award for Best Performance. Following this success, AIP wanted, was eager to build on this success further and so reached an agreement with Price. And Price and Corman would go on to make a further seven films the bulk of which became known as The Poe Cycle. And after Usher features The Pit and the Pendulum, Tales of Terror, The Raven, The Mask of the Red Death, The Tomb of Ligeia, Tower of London, and The Haunted Palace, all between 1960 and 1964. The scripts for these were written between Charles Beaumont and Richard Matheson. Matheson better known as a science fiction and horror writer for books such as I Am Legend. Each film in the Poe cycle taps into the darker tones of Edgar Allan Poe, but also balances them with humour, as in Tales of Terror and The Raven. These films were a huge success and were all involved and solidified Price as the king of the gothic horror. As well as working with AIP, Price also made other films that attempted to tap into his gothic horror success. Films of note are Twice Told Tales, 1963, The Comedy of Terrors, also 1963, and most importantly, The Last Man on Earth, 1964. The last film on this list is an adaptation of the Matheson novel I Am Legend, which benefited from a screenplay by Matheson himself. While special effects and budget limitations didn't allow a completely faithful adaptation, it is still a striking film that doesn't hold back for a film made in the early 60s. It's bleak, and Price gives a wonderfully dark and restrained performance as Dr Robert Morgan, the man being hunted by a new race of vampires. It holds its nerves throughout, and has a wonderfully downbeat ending. For me, this is still the best adaptation of the source novel. 1960-1965 was a fantastically busy time for Price. In a time of life where most actors find it harder to get roles, Price was busier than ever and making a name for himself. To most, he was now the king of horror with a growing fan base around these films. To Price, however, this was still, still just one part of many things he had a passion for. His time in Hollywood had not diminished his passion for art, and over the decades since he left his art history course, he had continued his education. More than that, he was now working to educate others and support art projects all over America, particularly in California. To a group of people outside of Hollywood, he was better appreciated as an art collector and scholar. He would give lectures around the country, as well as donating his collection to exhibits. In addition to this, he worked with his wife Mary to create ways in which art could be made accessible and to view and purchase to as many people as possible. The different projects created to do this achieved varying success, but were always a major part of Price's life work. These projects ranged from supporting art museums, galleries and artists, to creating a line of affordable, original and print art pieces for the department stores, Sears. Price strongly believed that art could and should be for everyone, not just for those that could afford a major art piece. Many of the prints and paintings can still be found for purchase online today. 
Back working on the screen, Price was working on smaller projects that he enjoyed and would allow him to spend more time at home. He would make cameos in a host of TV shows during this period, from The Man From U.N.C.L.E. to F Troop, and from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea to his memorable and extraordinary character in the 1960s Batman series Egghead, a character made up for the show. Oh, protect me, Batgirl. That monster is going to shoot me. Not so brave when your henchmen aren't around, are you, Egghead? Oh, I never claimed to be brave, Batgirl. No, I'm, I'm clever and crafty, but I'm a complete coward. You, you, you won't let him shoot me. That depends. Where are the Cossacks you've been running around with? Oh, they've gone, Batgirl. They left before I came. Left for where, Egghead? I don't know. No? Well, they did mention their destination, but you see, they speak Bessarabian, and I don't speak the language. Perhaps there are some other languages you do know, Egghead. The language spoken by that guard's gun, for instance. Oh, no. Oh, oh please, you can't ask me to rat on my friends. Oh, yes, I can, and you'd better start ratting fast. Do you expect me, a, a, a respected arch-criminal, to, to think on my friends like a, like a common stool pigeon? Of course. All right, I'll do it. Amongst all this fun, Vincent was still working to fulfil his contractual obligations to AIP, but was concerned that the quality of the scripts was starting to slip. However, a script was sent to him that he did not want to turn down. Based on a novel of the same name, The Witchfinder General is about the foul deeds of Matthew Hopkins, a man that would ride from village to village in the 17th century and stoke fear of witches that only he could seek out and save people from. Price leapt at the chance to play a meaty villain with less camp. The script was taken to AIP, who agreed to co-produce it as long as Price starred in it, which wasn't going to be a problem. Unfortunately, Price and the film's director, Michael Reeves, didn't get along very well. However, while there was tension on set, they both brought their A-game and produced a wonderfully bleak and suspenseful period horror. The critics would agree, and both Reeves and Price received high praise for the film. This success did not transfer over to Price's next project, The Oblong Box, but it was noteworthy for being the first time Price would share the screen with another horror icon, Christopher Lee. The two men, both educated and erudite, would have long conversations about numerous subjects, kicking off a lifelong friendship. A year later, the duo became a trio when Price was introduced to Lee's often screen enemy, Peter Cushing, on the set of Scream and Scream Again. The three men would spend hours offset exploring the cultural centres of London and swapping stories. Price would admit to friends at home in the US that while some of these films weren't all that they were cracked up to be, it was still a pleasure to be working in the UK so that he would have time to spend with his new friends. I just want to stop for a moment and consider that. London, 1969, Vincent Price, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing strolling through the parks and halls of art museums by day, then enjoying the evening sat around a fire in a small pub, swapping stories and discussing any number of topics. Three icons of horror, three True gentleman. For some reason, knowing this probably happened makes me really happy. I know it's daft, but there you are. Anyway, back to it. The 70s continued his journey to becoming one of the premier kings of horror, with some twisted and weird revenge movies that I would argue are proto-slashers, 
Before Michael Myers donned his mask, Price was finding twisted ways to kill people in the abominable Dr. Fives. Dr. Fives rises again. Theatre of Blood and Madhouse. These are some of my favourite Price films. The Fives movies are surreal and beautifully decadent with some of the oddest characters in horror, one of which may actually be a robot. Theatre of Blood is Price at full tilt and overacting in all the best ways that the movie calls for. Finally, Madhouse is back to a darker tone, laced with resentment and madness, and a final scene that I'm never entirely sure is perfect or daft. Either way, it makes a statement. While his acting career was continuing to stay strong, many believed that his home life was just as successful, which, by all accounts, it was. So it came as a surprise when the marriage ended. Vincent was happy with Mary, but he was what can only be described as bored. Midlife crisis, maybe. Whatever the cause, when Vincent met Coral Brown on the set of Theatre of Blood in 1973, he was infatuated. They had several scenes together, but spent more and more time together, and he would continually dote on her, on and off set. This on-set affair seeped into Vincent. After the filming concluded, he returned to America, and his wife and daughter. But he and Coral continued to correspond. Later, in 1974, he returned to London to, to, to do some voice work, and would spend more time with Coral. It was clear to the few in the know that after this visit something had altered and people were going to get hurt. While still in London, his wife Mary was attempting to reach him to discuss a business matter relating to one of their other projects. After hours of trying to track him down, she was finally successful. But having been given the runaround, as well as his suspicious behaviour for the last few months, Mary quickly confronted him, asking if he was with another woman. Vincent said, yes. Shocked and hurt, Mary blurted out, do you want a divorce? To which Vincent simply replied once again, yes. A marriage that had seemed so solid to everyone who knew them was over. People were shocked, but none more so than Mary and their daughter Victoria. It would take several years to mend these bridges. The divorce was settled quickly, and in August 1974, Vincent Price married Coral Brown, his third wife. The next ten years was populated by a variety of work. The movie roles were a little sparser in the second half of the decade, but the TV work continued and Price had never left the stage, having returned a number of times, and he did so again in the late 70s. In addition to this, he was expanding his lecture touring uh, about art and his career as an actor. He also had an act as Oscar Wilde that was popular and toured often. Price had reached a point of being almost completely comfortable with who he was and was able to move through his life with a casual sophistication that few could achieve. One of the things that I have thought about when reading up this, for this episode is the idea of transitioning from a current star to a cult icon whose past work is celebrated. What happens to make that transition? Vincent Price seemed to stay relevant for decades. And if you look online now, there are dozens of fan groups and websites and a large portion of his back catalogue has been given the special edition treatment. I own a lot of it myself. 
So why Vincent Price? One of the key factors is the horror community respects and relishes its roots. Vincent made films in all genres, but it's his horror movies that have lasted and cemented his legacy. Also, in each of these, he knew the assignment. Corman's post cycle shifts from melodramatic gothic horror in House of Usher and Tomb of Ligeia to campy comedy in The Raven and Tales of Terror. He could do both with ease, and he always gave it all he could. Watch The Witchfinder General and then Theatre of Blood. He is able to balance menace with charm and humour, even as the worst of villains. His screen presence is undoubtable, a joy to watch, even in the un most uneven of films. The other fact that I considered was how Price has been presented in other media. He was continually happy to cameo in TV shows as he got older and embraced how these cameos would poke fun at his spooky caricature. He has a Halloween classic appearance in The Muppets in 1979 and joins Scooby-Doo and his gang in 1985 in the short run 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. The horror icon was being made palatable for kids in two of the most iconic shows in their own right. In addition to this, he bridged the gap into other media, such as music. Having been in the Saint in the 40s, he often used his identifiable tones for for voice work. In 1969, he released a spoken word album about the supernatural, witchcraft, and adventure in demonology. It's a bizarre concept, but a fascinating listen. Almost two hours of Vincent talking about the history of witchcraft and demonology. How is this not a Halloween cl classic? I've got no idea, but check it out. It's actually on Prime Music. Anyway, this album almost definitely caught the attention of one Alice Cooper. His voice a perfect complement to what Alice Cooper was producing, and Price was to join Cooper in two rock concept films, in 1975, The Nightmare, and in 1979, The Strange Case of Alice Cooper. Predating his more famous music introduction in Thriller, some of the voice work done for these films was used in Alice Cooper's album, Welcome to My Nightmare, in 1975 for the song Black Widow. What it boils down to is charisma, not just a screen present or an acting talent, which he definitely had, but also a personality that transcended the screen. There are great actors that will be remembered as such, but I don't think you will have groups of people buying the latest collection of Daniel Day-Lewis films in the same numbers as the prize collections. More than that though, he was a man who loved life, enjoying and celebrating the best it can give, from art to fine food. He was cultured, flawed most definitely, but never cruel or too ego-driven. He is the wonderful dichotomy you get in entertainment, the gentleman horror icon. He summed up his approach to life with a simple quote, a man who limits his interests limits his life. Wise words to live by. Why limit yourself when there is so much to experience? Before we go, I want to talk a little about how I became a fan of Vincent Price. As I mentioned, I was first introduced to him in Thriller and Edward Scissorhands, but it was actually the house on Haunted Hill that I saw him properly for the first time. It wasn't actually that long ago, about five years ago. I was searching through Amazon Prime and saw that 
that House on Haunted Hill was on there. I had seen the 90s remake and heard of it, so gave it a go. The film is a wonderfully quirky thriller, snarky and dark without being mean-spirited, and Vincent Price is excellent in it as the host of the party, smooth and charming, with a hint of menace. You never fully trust, trust him, but you enjoy seeing him on screen. I was thoroughly impressed and wanted to check out more. I was already buying Blu-rays from Arrow Video and knew they had some price movies for sale. I went on and found they had more than a couple. I quickly bought some of the post cycle and, enjoying them, I moved on to the rest of what was available. I have since collected and watched most of what is available in the UK. In the next episode, I will do a rundown of my top five favourite price movies and give some details about them. However, if you want to check out some price before then, have a look on Amazon Prime. There are even some films available for free on YouTube. I should also highlight that this has been a pretty brief overview of a career on screen and in art that lasted over 50 years. If you would like to know more, I would highly recommend two of the books I use for research to write this episode. Vincent Price, The Daughter's Biography by Victoria Price and The Price of Fear by Joel Eisner. Anyway, there we have it. That is my overview of Vincent Price, my first episode, that look into this man's life, this wonderful actor and this wonderful man. So before we go, I want to remind you, there is much more going on with 20th Century Geeks. I hope you've enjoyed this view. We've done a couple of these sort of recorded, scripted episodes recently. We had the 50 Years of the Exorcist, and there may be some more coming up in the, in the future. Let me know if you like them. They're a bit different. Um, but more than that, if you like what we are doing on the podcast, please, please, please go to your podcast catcher and leave a review. It's greatly appreciated. And it's not like how many stars you leave. Just leave a review and give us the feedback. It's all good. I really appreciate it. More than that, don't forget, we have a website with all the blogs and other things on there. I've got some new stuff coming up uh, on there very soon, including uh, access to our sister podcast, Stories Out of Time and Space. So go check out the website. That's www.com. 20thcenturygeek.com and if you want to talk to me if you want to come and reach out and give me feedback talk about topics, ideas or anything else you've heard on the podcast, you can email me directly that's 20thcenturygeek at gmail.com or you can find me on social media at 20thcenturygeek got the branding on point on this one uh, but more than that, if you really want to support us and you really want to dig into what we got we do have a Patreon that's uh, Patreon slash 20cg pod and uh, on that we have got a number of things we give away we've got behind the scenes blogging behind the scenes photos all kinds of bits and pieces of other projects we do we have a monthly uh, podcast on there called 30 minute thoughts where a topic is chosen by the patrons and i give my thoughts on it for 30 minutes it's actually really good fun uh, more than that we do quarterly uh, creator corner where i get a creative person in from one of the different many many things and we talk about one of the projects they're working on at the moment um and also if you are in the top tier of patrons you get to choose what we do for a show and the main feed once a quarter we get the patreon episode all good stuff so go check that out that's patreon slash 20 cg pod okay well ladies and gentlemen i've really enjoyed talking about this i'm really enjoying talking about vincent price i hope you've enjoyed it too and in the next episode we're going to be talking about his top five films my favorite top five uh, vincent price films and i hope you'll reach out to me before then it's coming in two weeks reach out to me and tell me your favorite vincent price films 
until then thank you very much and we shall talk again soon